Our second reading for today comes to us from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. If you would like to follow along in your pew Bible on page 11 in the New Testament section, um, in case you flip through the pew Bible, just a reminder, once you hit that New Testament, the page number is reset. So if you go to page 11, you're going to be in the uh, uh, Old Testament, unless you turn at least halfway through. So... Or you can follow along as it is on the screen for you this day. Let us listen now to God's holy word and what it says to us this day. Now when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and proclaim his message in their cities. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or are we to wait for another. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. We continue on in our series, our uh, fall series, where we are looking at the great ends of the church. Last week, we looked at the preservation of truth, and this week, we arrive at the principle of social righteousness. As we talk about social righteousness, it's interesting for us to take into account what we hear this week and what we have experienced as a church as God's people. Because we can certainly look back through history and find cases where that wasn't always the case. Going back to 1944, standing in front of the Nationals People uh, Congress in Bloemfontein, South African city. I was looking at Howard in case I was saying it wrong. In South Africa, standing before the National People's Congress, J.D. Dutoy, a poet and Bible translator, got up and said these words. He said, give me a Bible text, says the opponent of our color policy, a text that proves that segregation is in agreement with the utterances of Holy Scripture. I have no text, is my answer. Then I have won the case, says the advocate for equality. I answer, I don't have a text, but I have the Bible, the whole Bible. My argumentation would proceed from Genesis to Revelation. Toit's speech, the religious foundation of our race policy, was a defense of segregation and what we would later know as the policy of apartheid. The Reformed Church in South Africa certainly played a significant role in the formation and the defense of apartheid. But we should not forget that as quick as the church was to support and defend apartheid, it also played a vital role in the deconstruction of South Africa's policy of segregation as well. It's this complex history we have 
And looking back throughout our history, we find that the church and Christians, disciples of God, have done a pretty good job at times of manipulating the gospel, God's overall love story to creation, for malicious purposes, which could only lead, I think, to questions of those looking on the outside and perhaps inside, questions of skepticism and disappointment. Questions of skepticism and disappointment certainly heard in John's question to Jesus, John the Baptist's inquiry to Jesus. Was Jesus the one, or was there another to come? And if Jesus was the one, how do we know he was the Messiah, the chosen one? And if he was the one, how do we live as faithful disciples that bear hope and truth? How do we live as people of faith who demonstrate a call to social righteousness that seeks to prevent such atrocities that run counter to the holy way of God, the life way of God? You wouldn't think it would be hard to love our neighbors as ourselves. You wouldn't think that it would be difficult for us to love one another, to treat others as we ourselves would want to be treated. But judging just by looking around the news and reading what you find on social media and in the newspapers and on bumper stickers, we have another kind of epidemic of people who not only hate or dislike or lack love for others, but apparently they also don't love themselves based off of how they're treating others. It's no wonder that John would have had questions for Jesus. It's no wonder that John would have had clung so tightly to the well-known promise of restoration that we hear in this reading this morning as well from Isaiah, who talks about a joy the likes of which we have not yet known. People who do not see shall see. People who have mobility needs shall walk. And people who do not speak shall sing. It is a vision of hope that weaves together the political and the civil and the spiritual inspiration for what the world could and should be in our time. Isaiah professed this message of complete restoration of creation, not just parts of it, but all the places that are broken, all the places that are yearning for something more. So imagine, just imagine for a moment how John must have felt when he heard that Jesus, the Messiah, arrived. Finally, finally the one who would fulfill these words of Isaiah has come. But as John sits in prison, perhaps he's looking out his prison cell bars that look to the outside. Perhaps he's talking to his disciples who come and visit him. He finds that even though this Messiah has come, there's a disappointing reality. There are some people who are blind, who are given sight. Some being the operative word, because not all those who are blind were given sight. 
Some people were given the ability to walk. Again, not all, just some. You could hear the disappointment in John's question to Jesus, which stems from the realization that not all the broken places have been restored. People were still being held as political prisoners. Widows and orphans still went without food. Religious leaders were focused more on piety than using their faith to bring about social witness and righteousness. And leaders still rung the symbols that called for war. Much like we experience these things today. But Jesus is not offended by John's question. In fact, Jesus almost appears as though he's used to this kind of questioning. But Jesus doesn't provide the sort of answer that John or us wants to hear. The prophecy Isaiah foretold would not take place with the miraculous snap of divine fingers, but would instead involve complex and messy work that we find in our call to discipleship. Jesus draws John into a new understanding of the prophet's vision in hopes that our disappointments and questions can reveal in our hearts, in our eyes, and our ears a more profound truth and blessing of the righteousness that moves in our presence when we follow the God of life and the life we are called to pursue. While we are not yet at a place where, all, where we all love our neighbors as ourselves, and though we have not yet arrived at a place where creation is restored, we are in a time, friends, where we co-labor with God in lifting the disappointment, the pain, the injustice, the oppression and exclusion and fear from people's hearts, from people's minds, from their souls. From out of time... We are called to lift these burdens, giving a foretaste of what is to come. We heard this, I think, as well in that song, the choir song, that beautiful anthem they gave for us. We are called in our social righteousness to build a church, one built of flesh, and blood, one that is built on our own frailty, on our own failures of our own shortcomings. And building upon this church, friends, we create something new. We create an opportunity to welcome in the stranger. We create an opportunity to welcome in those who may be alienated or those who are lonely, those who are seeking for a place to welcome them as whoever it is they are. That is part of our social witness. Part of our social witness and understanding of what it means to live out the gospel in our lives. We are reminded that Jesus came into the world to enable us, to empower us to carry out the work of healing and reconciliation and restoration. And that to stand in the light of the gospel means that we are to stand in solidarity with the least of these, with the heart of God. 
Our social witness will take us to places where we evaluate our priorities as individuals and as a church. And perhaps that means a reordering of priorities. As I mentioned previously, that same Reformed Church in South Africa, which justified and supported apartheid, would eventually become one of the most potent agents of change in the process of dismantling the policy. Such a shift can be found in their confession that they wrote afterwards, the Belhar Confession, written 40-some-odd years later, after the church initially supported apartheid. And in this confession, the church says this, Therefore we reject any ideology which would legitimate, legitimate forms of injustice and any doctrine which is unwilling to resist such an ideology in the name of the gospel. We believe that in obedience to Jesus Christ, its only head of the church, the church is called to confess and to do all these things, even though the authorities and human laws might forbid them, and punishments and suffering be consequences. Jesus is Lord, and to the one and only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be the honor and glory forever and ever. Friends, in our social witness, we will understand this too, that in our witness to the gospel, we will be called to love in ways that may not always be seen as acceptable by others. We will be called to welcome others in ways that might not always be deemed as acceptable or proper and in order. Friends, we will be called to do work, to bear witness in ways that may surprise us. But we will not know unless we take the risk of bearing witness to the places where God is calling us, to the broken places that are still in need of healing. We follow in the footsteps of women and men who have come before us and modeled for us what it meant to live in the light of God. Some were teachers, some were doctors and nurses, Others were politicians or reformers. Others were religious leaders. And a great many more were people like you and me who stand looking over the edge with a choice to make. Do we let our disappointment take a hold of our faith? Do we let our fear guide our decision-making? Do we let ideologies that run contrary to a gospel of welcome and love guide our lives? Or do we choose to live boldly and craft a new way forward that brings hope and brings a new way of living and upholds the righteousness of our God of life? Each and every day, friends, we make that choice. And each and every day after that, we decide how we are to live. Our pursuit of social righteousness is not an endeavor to create a moral high plane for ourselves because Lord knows no one is greater than someone else, for we all make mistakes. Instead, the type of righteousness we are talking about is a social righteousness that we hear in this great end, that extends to how we operate in the pursuit of bringing life bringing to life Isaiah's prophecy 
in many ways the work of social righteousness within the church and our own souls. Reminds me a little bit of that song, uh, the garden song, where, you know, inch by inch, row by row, going to make this garden grow. Our pursuit of social righteousness is something that will take work inch by inch, person by person, heart to heart, heart by heart, beginning with ourselves. As we overturn the brokenness and disappointments of this world, as we turn it over one bit at a time. And in doing so, we reveal the brilliance of Isaiah's vision and the promise of a new future that Jesus made to John. Friends, may our hearts and our souls be open to receiving this good news, this good news, this good word of God's unfolding love for us and for all creation. Amen.